Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Painting and taking on all the blatant paint and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, agreement is something that you've probably heard about. It's been covered pretty widely in the news uh, that it exists, and maybe you've heard the broad strokes about it, that it's a free trade agreement among 12 Pacific Rim nations, including the U.S., Canada, Japan, Mexico, Australia, New Zealand, and a few others as well, um, but Important, somewhat importantly, not including China, uh, which, last I checked, actually takes up a fair bit of the Pacific Rim, but uh, we can discuss that <laughs> in a little bit. Uh, there's been fairly widespread controversy about the TPP agreement uh, with lots of complaints about it, uh, but the complaints are coming from many different directions and perspectives, and some of them, I think, are more legit than others. Many have compared the TPP to the U.S.'s last big free trade agreement, which was NAFTA. And while there are some similarities, there are some major differences as well. At its core, whether you like it or not, NAFTA was mostly about uh, free trade and reducing tariffs and, and whatnot. With the TPP, um, there really aren't that many tariffs to reduce, as many of these countries already have free trade deals in place. Instead, the TPP represents something that I think is a little bit different. It's a move towards more towards aligning all kinds of regulations, or what people refer to as non-tariff barriers. This means things like aligning intellectual property laws um, is, is suddenly uh, a part of a free trade deal, despite having absolutely nothing to do with free trade, in my opinion at least. Um, personally, while there are lots of reasons to be concerned about the TPP, I have three big concerns. The first is the way in which it was created with basically zero transparency. Almost all, uh, all of it was done behind closed doors. The second is the inclusion of intellectual property laws um, in an agreement where um, the design is only to ratchet those laws in one direction, and I would say it's not a good direction. Uh, and the third is a horrible concept included in these agreements called the Investor State Dispute Settlement Mechanism, or ISDS, um, which I think was named in a way to be as boring as is absolutely possible, but which really gives corporations somewhat sovereign powers to try to block certain rules and regulations in foreign countries. Um, today, we'd like to discuss all that and more, and to do so, we've brought on a special guest, uh, which is, uh, who is Myra Sutton, uh, the Global Policy Analyst at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and who has been following the TPP closer than just about anyone, uh, and uh, working hard to in campaigning to block the agreement from ever being implemented. She's here along with our usual co-host, Dennis Yang and Hirsch Reddy. Um, so we'll start with Myra because I've listed out my biggest concerns with the TPP, uh, but I know you've got your own concerns as well. So I want to start the discussion with what you think your biggest concerns are. Uh, yeah, so great to be here. Um, 
So you definitely covered the more the, the procedural issues. I would also add, um, in addition to being completely secret from the very beginning, from when it was uh, when it began negotiations over five years ago, um, is the fact that there, you know, was no public input. I mean, yeah. um, transparency is one thing, right? Where they could uh, say what their objectives are for these for the TPP. Um, talk about what they'd like to do, but oftentimes they're very vague. Um, and even if they were pretty transparent with the actual substance of the text, um, you know, if if the public and you know uh, entrepreneurs and smaller businesses and libraries and you know the diverse uh, voices of the internet and of the economy aren't able to actually influence the text of the agreement, then uh, we just you know see ourselves getting screwed yeah. um, through a transparent window and not actually be able to do anything. <laughs> well, that, about that, it. that was one of the things, right? I mean, so so the the party for the United States that's responsible for negotiating it is the U.S. Trade Rep or USTR, right? And they claim that this was the most transparent uh, trade agreement in history, or something like that. And and their reasoning for that was basically that, well, I think two things. One is that they would. Um, at different points kind of announce little aspects of what they were doing, sort of give you some peek into it, but not really the details. And and in this this is a case where the details really matter. And the second thing was, and they kept claiming this, and in fact they reached out to me about it, was that they would meet with anyone, right? So if you wanted to meet with them, you could request, and they insisted that anyone who wanted to meet with them would meet with them, and that they would listen to you. But But listening is information flow from someone to the USTR. That's not transparency. Transparency is information flow from the USTR to the public. And that's what would create, you know, it's, it's tough to go in and, um, and have a discussion that could shape how this agreement is formed when you don't actually know what's in the agreement. Exactly. I mean, um, I've been to several of the actual negotiation rounds and they'd have these briefings for public stakeholders and they would take questions and then, you know, barely say anything. Um, we'd give them comments. They'd um, say, oh, that sounds, that sounds great. That's a great concept, but <laughs> actually not talk about um, the substantive issues that are in there. Um, and for example, um, the first negotiation round I went to in San Diego in uh, 2012 was when they introduced uh, uh, exceptions, limitations to copyright for the first time. And, um, their press release, the U.S. the U.S. Trade Representatives' uh, press release was like, uh, "We are introducing fair use to the TPP finally, and it's going to be great because it's been so important and critical to uh, the U.S. digital economy." You know, sort of inviting us to pat them on the back. But mm -hmm. from the very beginning, we were very skeptical because the actual language, the details, really matter. Right. Um, and it turns out, three years later, when the text finally came out that it was actually a very restrictive version of, of uh, not even fair use, it's a, just exception limitations to copyright. So um, to, to answer your first question, <laughs> what, what is one of the problems? Um, these exception limitations language um, sort of is one great example of the overarching problem with the TPP in relation to uh, users' rights and public the public interests um, in the TPP, which is that all of the provisions that uphold uh, Hollywood's interests, of tech industry's interests, and actually not even the whole of Hollywood or the tech industry. It's a very elite, very um, involved, powerful, influential uh, uh, sectors and, and companies themselves are influencing the whole of these policies 
and creating obligations that countries, including the United States, are hardwiring into the TPP, whereas all of the protections that they are continuing to tout as being, uh, you know, protections for users, such as this exceptions limitations language, which is really weak, um, or exceptions to circumventing digital rights management, DRM, on devices, or um, the language that says that we recognize the importance of the public domain, which was whittled down to, whittled down from uh, that we shall uphold the importance of the public domain. All these sort of um, protections that are, are, are very hand-wavy, they're actually not obligations. So they're touting those protections as being part of TPP, and they want credit for that. But in practice, when countries are passing laws and they're obligated by the TPP in the future, including the United States, we will be bound by these rules and not be able to change or reform them, nor pass better rules that will... Um, actually adapt to the evolving digital economy. Yeah, and, and I think that's a that's a big concern to me. I mean, part of it, at least in you know from my perspective, it, it felt like the USTR thinks that it's um, it, that that it's the, the main stakeholders are certain large businesses, right? And, and that's basically who they feel that they're working for. And th there's this process that's set up um, for people who don't know, which is that there are these advisory committees, right? Who um, advise the USTR on these trade agreements, um, but also, you know, and they're generally lobbyist. I mean, I, there are certain rules, and that's not supposed to be lobbyists technically who are on these advisory committees, but they are. And um, and those people actually had full access to the details in many cases, where they could literally log in with their computer and see the language, and and you know. When you look at the specific language, and actually the, the, the fair use question is, is a perfect example of this, where when that came out at, at that one meeting that you were at, the USTR was really proud of the fact that they said, this is the, this is the very first trade agreement where we've introduced this language on fair use. But then you look at it, and what it was is they were outlining like this sort of three-step test, basically, which is, is really kind of a, a cap on fair use. It's saying you can have fair use, but with with these limitations, which right, three steps of restrictions, <laughs> right? Yeah, and and you know, and and so that's that's one example of where the the specific language matters. And the more that people who are expert in this go through the agreement since it's since it has been finally you know publicly released, the more they're finding all of these little problems in the language, little problems that could have been dealt with properly if we'd had you know public input on them going back a ways, right? And I mean, uh, so these trade advisory committees, these TACs, um, were introduced as sort of a, a way to make it more transparent, but actually, as you said, did the complete opposite, um, which is why I believe it was last year or two years ago, um, they introduced a public interest right. trade advisory committee, the PTAC, and uh, uh, in practice, you know, none of the civil society groups, especially the ones I talked to, and um, I actually don't know any of, any of my... Uh, coalition partners that have been sitting on this because they force everybody who serves on them to sign a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA, so you aren't able to tell other people about what is in uh, the agreement. And so as you know, public interest organizations, we don't want to have our hands tied behind our back from being able to do our job to actually tell the public what's wrong. And, and well, just well, before we go on, like more, so <laughs> there's a reason why the USTR has these very secretive ways of doing trade, right? What is we, that we could disagree with them, but, <laughs> um, you know, not to 
endorse the way they do business, but there's it's not a nefarious plan that they've come up with, right? It's something that well, has evolved after a long period of time because trade agreements generally involve winners and losers. And the losers generally have way more interests and resources to block a trade agreement than the winners, who is usually the general economy. So if you think about a typical trade deal, you're lowering some kind of tariff. Well, who benefits? The entire population, but minusculely. Who loses? Well, the good that was previously protected by the tariff. And so it was very difficult, you know, uh, pre-war to, to lower tariffs. And so they kind of, they realized that every time they were negotiating a trade deal, if all the details were out front, what would happen is the specific industry groups, like say the sugar lobby, would move forward and block the specific tariff reduction that they were negotiating for. And in order to prevent that, and so really it was sort of a barrier against industry, is the reason why they evolved these kind of rules where things were secretive. Now, this may have gotten out of hand because, for example, I, I brought up the sugar example, but in the TPP, there's actually a carve-out for the sugar, right? <laughs> so it's not quite working exactly the way it should, but on the other hand... Or it's not working at all. I mean. Well, it, let, let's, let's put this okay. in perspective, right? Um, people complain about NAFTA here and there. People complain about the WTO, but a lot, almost all economists will agree that a huge portion of global GDP growth can be attributed to the fact that first, under agreements like NAFTA and even earlier trade agreements, there was massive increase in global trade, and that efficiency uh, brought up global GDP growth. And then, you know, starting in the 80s uh, with the WTO, uh, the tariff reductions there helped people go even beyond and sort of integrate their supply chains well, as well, and that boosted GDP growth. And all those things are benefits that we're all benefiting from, and there was stagnant growth prior to that. And so it's not like trade agreements are all evil. Now, right. I do agree we have to be concerned about specific but parts, so, but let's so, put it in so, perspective. So, sure. So, and, and as I said in my opening, you know, I at least agree that, that reducing tariffs is a good thing. My problem is that this process that was designed for that purpose, to be able to reduce tariffs mm -hmm. and increase trade, has been co-opted by lots of other industries not for, for things that have absolutely nothing to well, do with tariffs well, and nothing right. to do, frankly, with free trade. Well, that's but, not. So look at the goal of the TPP, right? Unlike the WTO negotiations and earlier rounds, the TPP is really looking to lower barriers to trade that have to do with sort of the service economy. At least that's their logic. Now, I'm, I can't, I'm not in a position to look at every single kind of barrier that they've reduced and see if that's actually the case. But the logic is that you would do things like, for example, let's say trade and legal services. There's huge protectionism in every U.S. state. And uh, a lot of those barriers to entry for lawyers to practice don't really make sense for the consumer. There's things like, I can't get advice about patents from a guy who's in India who knows everything about U.S. patent law. Um, and that's really kind of a business decision, whether or not I want to rely on his patent expertise. But I have to use a U.S. patent attorney, probably one that's passed the U.S. California patent law and probably sitting in California at a much higher fee, right? And what is the reason for that? And does that barrier actually make sense for patent law? I can understand for criminal law requiring people to pass a California bar and be moderated by the state. But for some business decision or an export regulation or something like that, you know, a lot of these barriers to legal uh, service trade don't make sense. And so there's different, definitely things like that that aren't explicitly tariffs, but they act as tariffs. Right. right but there's, I mean, that's the thing is that uh, many regulations are painted as being barriers um, necessarily. And you're, you're also assuming that all of the uh, uh, interests that are lobbying for provisions in the TPP are necessarily asking for things that are lowering barriers. I mean, a great example is the copyright term extension, right? Um, where 
uh, half of the TPP countries currently have life of the author plus 50 years, um, which is a existing global norm. And um, many, many economists um, have, have shown that the additional life, uh, the additional 20 years that the United States has and an increasing number of, co of countries have mm -hmm. do nothing to actually promote the creation of new works um, and is actually harming a lot of new, new uh, uh, creative uh, endeavors. Uh, I, I actually 100% agree with that. And I do think portions of the TPP have definitely been co-opted by specific industry groups like Hollywood and the recording industries. I mean, they definitely have been lobbying. And it's actually very suspicious, I think, that um, a lot of the public interest groups had no knowledge of what's going on, but these very specific you know, Hollywood and, and, and recording industry interests knew exactly what was going on. Or for example, how did the how did the sugar lobby manage to <laughs> get all their those things in there, right? Like it doesn't quite make sense. But if you look at it from the point of view of sort of how the American political system works, we see that kind of, uh, you know, pork and sausage making and almost every kind of uh, legal rulemaking, right? Uh, whether it's... But but this is absolutely true. But much of that is, you know, at least then there's public debate about it, right? And in mm -hmm. that, this was, you know, I mean, there are two elements here, and without getting too much into the the weeds of the process, right? The way that the TPP is structured um, is that in in order to, uh, to to basically have it finalized, Congress effectively gave up its ability to. Um, challenge different provisions. They can only do a, a total yes or no vote, and that, um, you know, and that led to the the agreement being finalized and released. And there's no way to go back and, and negotiate things. So the fact that the whole thing is negotiated in secret and there's no way to then change it other than a, a mm -hmm. total yes or no vote is really problematic. And and just going back to the point, like I agree with you that there are plenty of regulations that are clearly just designed to be barriers to entry to, to prop up certain kinds of businesses or, or certain things like that. And I recognize that that's a problem. I have a, a, a further problem with the idea that the solution to that is to secretly get rid of them, right? If those things are really that problematic, make the case publicly that they're problematic and that there's a better way to do things and that we can fix these things. And, you know, you can argue that that's politically naive or whatever, but... Like, I think if there's there's a real problem and you can state it publicly, there's no reason why it shouldn't be discussed publicly. The idea that it has to be done in secret just because there are powerful interests that will try and block it, that that's not a compelling and argument. And there's another angle of this, which is uh, trade agreements, because they are expanding in scope, um, people are saying that a majority of the provisions that are in the 30 chapters and its thousands of pages are regulatory issues. They're not... Um, you know, tariffs or trade issues, even in the digital trade sense, right, um, is that there's no mention of human rights. I mean, I know, um, I think if I said that in D.C., people would roll my eyes at me, but, you know, um, I, I saw a great sort of example of this last week when um, uh, on Tuesday, uh, EFF and uh, Privacy International and Article 19 filed a brief asking um, the Federal Appeals Court to hold Cisco systems accountable for working closely with the Chinese government to develop software to crack down, to identify, and help torture um, religious minorities, right? And that was on Tuesday. On Wednesday, Cisco came out with a op-ed in, in CNBC saying, TPP is so great for jobs, and it's so great for economic growth, um, and, and we have, you know, breaking down these barriers are great for our profits. And there's this lingering question for me, which is, at what point is 
you know, jobs and economic growth the only factor in which we create policy? Is, is um, how many of, they said 36,000 people they employ, right? How many of those 36,000 people worked on this software that is being used to torture people, essentially, right? Um, and how, how much money did they get from the Chinese government to develop those tools? Does that calculate it into their contribution to GDP growth? I mean, obviously that's one example, but that's, that's sort of the problem that I, th I feel that highlights the problem of enabling these rules to be decided with no, you know, opposing balance in terms of the, the, the effects of these policies. But let's just think about the Cisco example, right? So here's the thing. Have people, do people know, and I don't know about the Cisco case, case specifically, but did people at Cisco affirmatively know, did they actually know that this software that they were making or yes. the guys were making? Yeah. It was not general was purpose. They no, actually had it? marketing material that said this will be used for your... Um, surveillance? Yes. Surveillance day. And... Let me think about that. So, so the thing is, is the ch China is the government, right? And the United States, I mean, if you, if you want to indict China, the Chinese government, we really should indict all Americans. And the reason is, if you want to indict Cisco, the reason is the U.S. government allows that trade, right? Um, not only that, the U.S. government sells all kinds of things. I mean, why should only Cisco be the ones to suffer where anyone who's selling a commodity processor that's in that Open no, but, stack but, but there's, there's, is also there's, there's, is also there's difference guilty. There's di no, there's difference between just a commodity piece of the puzzle and like the core software that's being used. No, let, well, let me give you an example. That, that Google withdrew from China, sure. knowing what China was doing. Microsoft stayed, right? Mm -hmm. All the service providers, including you know everyone who does cloud services that stays but, in China, but, but, knows that they have to respond. But those are to those, warrants that, that's, the Chinese government. That's somewhat different, right? I mean, those are those are reacting to requests from the government for certain things or limiting access to certain things, right? I mean, the Cisco case, and, and this may be a whole other discussion, mm -hmm. and maybe we'll move, okay. move on to from it. From the, but that was a case where they sort of you know created specific software for you know uh, effectively. You know, going after religious minorities, right? And so that's a problem, right? I mean, there's a difference between proactively designing a product to do something evil mm -hmm. <laughs> versus you know reacting when you're in a situation where the government is requesting that you do something that you might not otherwise do, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so is that the fact pattern that that they literally they were like, hey, Cisco, make this for I, us, and we're going to spy on like? I, I mean, it, it it looks bad <laughs> from the details that have been released so far. Okay. Yeah, so far. I mean, yeah, the point of the case is to try and get discovery <laughs> and get more facts, but so far it's not looking great for them. Well, but the thing about like having hard and fast rules ahead of time is that like how I mean I think it, if you made a rule that says like hey you are not allowed to make goods and services for foreign governments that oppress their people I think that is a great rule and uh, but but people should understand that you're basically can't we will basically cut off the U.S. companies from basically dealing with Saudi Arabia, China, and a lot of these... Big, Again, I, I mean... I, and I think that's not a bad outcome, by the way. I think that is actually a good outcome. I think those countries really should reform the way they, they but, work. I mean, why are we selling all this stuff to, to Saudi Arabia? I mean, honestly, it's like a... Sure. I, I it's mean, a terrible state. I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> all right, we're, I think we're going a little bit off track, and, but I think there are ways to distinguish between, again, sort of providing, providing general services that are used in nefarious ways as opposed to providing specialized services that are designed specifically to do nefarious things, right? But again, that's a separate issue. Let's, let's move back to the TPP specifically. Um, well, no, but my point there with the TPP was that 
how are you going to make these rules that are consistent in the TPP? Like, what would you write that would prevent Cisco from doing that? Do you see? That's what I'm not saying? what I, my point was. Oh, okay. My point was that uh, when you create rules or mm. when you highlight the economic growth or GDP growth myopically, mm. sing singularly, you throw out all these other balancing uh, provisions and rules that could create more space to enable. Um, maybe those sort of challenges to companies. Maybe um, you know the, and, the include the people like libraries that will not be at the table. I mean, there's a huge. Yeah, but my point on that exactly was that. So, I, my, so my my response was, what would be those rules that you would like that but, are but being kept out that would like, for example, fair no. use. No, for I, example, ag I agree yeah. with. Fair for example, use, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, people with visual disabilities having a right carved into the TPP to pretty much ignore copyright so that they can have access to books. They can be, there could be more positive rights within trade agreements like the TVP. But the, to go back to the process, I mean, that, those things will not be put into mm -hmm. trade agreements as long as all of these rules are being framed as uh, you know, regulatory barriers, trade barriers, um, yeah. and, and that they need to be held up at the cost of all the other negative consequences yeah, that could that, occur. That's, no, but, but that's in, the, that's but the in terms of, issue. No, but in terms of aspirational things, if I go to the TPB coalition page, they have a huge list of things like human rights and all these aspirational goals. <laughs> and I think the real issue is not that they don't have those aspirational goals. It's just that people who would push those goals are, don't have a seat at the table. That, right? that's, that, a, that's, that's a big that, part of it. But, and, but, but the goals but, but, are definitely there. In terms no, of the aspirations, well, yeah, I, yes see them no. in the, I, mean, I see them they, listed they, on they, the page. They, sure. I mean, but the USDR basically put those in and, and after to, the fact to, yeah it's sort of to appease people to claim mm. that we took these things into effect but when you look at the actual document and the language in the document it's very clear that it's driven almost entirely by trade issues and again it's the u.s trade representative Th that's who they work with right and when you live in that world where those are the only people that you speak to are these sort of corporate representatives for the most part it's not surprising that that's what the focus is and i mean just talking about like human rights stuff you know as another example and this is a little bit uh, sidetrack, but like there was the whole example with, um, you know, again, there was this process that, that went through where the Congress passed something called Trade Promotion Authority, which is this fast track bill, which mm. means that, you know, when the USDR gives the TPP to mm. Congress, they can only do an yes up or, or down no, vote. Right. And, but there was, I guess, something of a little bit of a poison pill that was put in there, which basically said um, that they couldn't. So, like they couldn't support an agreement where one of the parties I forget the exact language so you can correct me if you know what it was but like where one of the parties is designated as like the top level of human rights violations and Malaysia is or was uh, considered ranked the worst, you know, on the, at that worst on the, level of, of human on, on the basis rights. of what? It was because like a, of human it was a, trafficking. It was a State Department report that comes out uh, analyzing mm -hmm. their human rights violations. And so, and so there are a couple of things with that. So they, they analyze it and they put countries into mm -hmm. tears. And the issue was human trafficking at the border and, and human slavery and all this kind mm -hmm. of pretty, In Malaysia? I don't yeah. know. Oh, it's, it's pretty seriously mm -hmm. bad stuff. And that report, the State Department report, usually comes out, I think, every year in March. Um, and ranks all these different mm -hmm. countries on human rights violations. And this year, magically, while this fight was going on over the Fast Track Authority, the State Department just didn't put out the report. 
Then the, you know, the fast track authority goes through in June and like weeks later, suddenly the State Department comes out with that report and they've magically downgraded Malaysia from a tier three to a tier two, which means they can be included in the agreement, Mm -hmm. even though like there is no evidence of any improvement over the human trafficking. And in fact, in in May, there had been like, (laughs) there's like mass graves found in Malaysia. Let me ask you a question. Uh, the mass graves is actually really horrifying. Uh, <laughs> well, but, good. I'm, but, yeah. I'm glad we could yeah, agree yeah, on yeah. that. Uh, but I just want to, you know, I just want to say that, you know, China has a huge number of people in, politically imprisoned, right? Sure. Huge, huge numbers. Um, we don't know how many people have been tortured there. Um, you know, so let's put that aside. Let's talk about a democratic. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about a democratic nation that and, America and, does and a, a booming trade sure. with. India. Okay. India has perhaps the largest number of people on the planet as as a total population. I don't mean as a percentage, but largest number of bonded labor, which is basically modern day slavery. Uh, huge internal transfers of uh, people that are trafficked, uh, women for. Uh, 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 sexual trafficking, uh, child labor. There's like huge violations, right? Sure. Um, the why aren't they on that worst list? And I, I, I think maybe uh, I don't know. They might be. Well, yeah. here's the thing. There's a difference between officially sanctioned things, and then I, I think things which the government is really trying to clamp down on, but non-state actors are kind of criminally doing these things, right? So there's all these laws on the books in India against all these things, and the Indian state is either because of corruption or inefficiency of the local arms of the state unable to block all these things that have essentially been illegal since 1947 when India got independence. And I suspect, is, is Malaysia in the same place? I don't know much about Malaysia, but I would suspect that the, these things are not happening with the sponsorship of the government of Malaysia. It's more probably like things going what, on. What things? The, oh, the, the Mass graves and the activities. These are probably non-state actors, criminal groups. No, but groups the State Department like. report is about putting diplomatic pressure on these countries to crack down on mm-hmm. these gross human rights violations. And so... When um, the the State Department magically downgrades Malaysia, for instance, because everyone knows it's because mm. of TPP, then all the other countries that are listed on this agreement then mm. says, oh, it's just, you know, you can just get downgraded if you just happen to have a trade agreement. Woohoo, we can maybe right. violate like, more human yeah. rights violations. Like so it completely bo- delegitimizes yeah. this report from the State Department mm. that is completely separate from economic or mm-hmm. trade issues, right? And it's like, it's, 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 harmful not just in terms mm-hmm. of the the TBP, I mean, and this whole trade agreement process has shown that it's not just the rules that themselves are, you know, bulldozing other kinds of maybe human rights violations to maybe more innocuous things like libraries having a really difficult time having access to books. Mm-hmm. Um, those things getting bulldozed for these other interests and how that has a cascading effect for all of international policy. You know, so I think one of the things that's missing from the debate, though, is really, you know, one of the, I think one of the reasons there's so much pressure on the Obama Obama administration and future Democratic or Republican administrations to make these kinds of deals, and I think it's something that's not widely spoken about, but really, if you think about it, like, Obama is a Democrat, and his whole election campaign was very progressive, and I suspect he's still a very progressive president, although he's pragmatic as well and tries to pass certain things using the mechanisms he has, which makes him appear non-progressive. But, you know, maybe I'm kind of an Obama (laughs) fan, so maybe I'm like, uh, I I shouldn't, you know, take my opinion with a grain of salt. But, you know, to talk about another presidential candidate, for example, Hillary Clinton was for the TPP before she was against the TPP, right? Sure. And so I think these people really do believe that on the balance, there are some yeah. benefits for the U.S. population yeah. that outweigh I, I, I don't think, I and, don't think but, the 
But let me characterize what the benefits are, because I don't think it's necessarily what people think. So the benefits, the way they are promoted at the election stump are things like we're going to get jobs for this and this industry. But I don't really think that's the real benefit for the politicians. I think the real benefit is the fact that when you have trade and you allow in new goods and services that are cheap, um, people's uh, purchasing power and well-being sort of broad-based gets better. In other words, they can buy more for their $1,000. They can buy more goods and services. There's more cheap thingamajiggies that they can buy in Walmart. (laughs) And I think those things make people feel happy and they feel like they're doing well. And so that during your administration or future administrations, the country continues to feel uh, like they have buying power, sure. like right. they're not poor. Right, and that's poor. the problem, right, is that maybe they, they think that, but clearly when the TVP is largely not about actual trade issues, right. they are continuing it's, to listen to no, what no. major industries are saying is good for their industries. And maybe, you know, policymakers mm. at the USTR are saying, oh, well, by listening to these very dominant industries, we can create more prosperity for everybody, create more jobs. I'm not, I don't think they're like pure evil you know i think they do have good intentions but that's no, the problem is that it's i disagree though i don't think obama and his representatives are that naive to believe that stuff i think i think they are convinced by the argument because just like you know it was hard to imagine how global supply chain integration would increase gdp growth it's probably hard for everyone to imagine how um, service trade could increase purchasing power for American consumers. But I think if you have trade and services, people will be able to hire lawyers from far cheaper than they can now. They'll be, it'll, maybe it'll be easier to get public defenders for people. There's, there's kinds of benefits that you can't imagine now, right? Like maybe going but, to the but, doctor but, but will be cheaper. But a lot cheaper. of that is not... I mean, there's a separate agreement, which is the trade and services agreement, mm-hmm. which actually touches on a lot more of that. And, and I, I would agree with you much more on that agreement than TPP. Mm-hmm. So wait, those aren't tied? No, they're, they're, two, they're separate, so, two separate agreements, actually. So the TPP uh, barrier reduction stuff is not the thing that is uh, harmonizing um, regulations for, for services. That's not. That's a separate agreement. Is the trade and services oh, agreement. Oh, then I got to withdraw is, what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> there is some of there, that there in there. Some, there it's, it's, not, it's not completely out of there. There is mm-hmm. definitely a, a part of it. There is a separate agreement, which is mm-hmm. so... Um, I yeah, always I mean, thought the is, TPP is, was a. Pre- I thought it was a preamble to that. Yeah, I mean, is is the overall problem with the overall kind of the process of negotiating this this agreement? I mean, it's been, it's been going on for like seven, eight years, seven years, right? So, it's. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we're in the end game now, yeah. right? So, yes, right. The the process was, but but I think even just the the entire perspective of it, and this is right. you know my opinion at least, yeah. right, which is that like again, like if it really were about what what people think of as free trade and reducing tariffs, and if it really was about the things that even Hirsch was just talking about, about, you know, making, you know, gadgets cheaper. It got too big, right. Then that's one thing. But, you know, basically about 15, 20 years ago, a lot of large companies began to realize, like, this is a process that we can, you know, We can influence, right? We can influence strongly by calling things that have nothing to do with trade, trade barriers. And therefore, not only can we lock in the kind of regulations that we want, but we can export those regulations and block them from coming in in other countries. Right. And so, you know, and, and it creates and, a whole bunch of things. And position it as if it were kind of for the right. benefit exactly. of the trade. I mean, a great example of that is how they completely turned intellectual property issues on his head in terms, yeah. of, in terms of a bar- barrier, right? So right. Yeah. they argue that because countries don't protect intellectual property, including patents and trademarks and mm-hmm. copyright, then they don't want to invest or sell their products in those countries and therefore harms 
their trade of goods and, and is a barrier because they don't protect copyright and patents and trademarks enough. So, you know, they, it's sort of, it's, it's completely on its head, right? Because, um, they're, huh. because that, that is fascinating how they did that. Though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's right. It's the opposite, it's right? It's pretty I smart mean, actually I mean, on their part. I mean, you could, you would normally argue that, that fewer protections right. Right, is more free trade. So but they're they, saying more completed. protections is, is to the benefit of free trade. Right. Or that it is free trade, which is yeah. ridiculous. Well, they need, they need ridiculous. it. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 but it's, but it's an argument that's worked so, and it's been very, very powerful and it's always, you know, expanded things in one direction. And, you know, if you, and if you talk to them, they're willing to admit that this is what they've done. And like, you know, the, the, and it's, it started many years ago, the DMCA itself, this law that, that, you know, we all talk about the reason that, you know, Congress tried to pass it before it did pass and they didn't, it failed. Yeah. And so the, the people who wanted the DMCA admit that they went to Geneva and they got a, a treaty. I forget even now what it was called. If you so, yeah, it, they went to the United Nations uh, World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, and passed two treaties, the WIPO Internet Treaties, to pass the DRM circumvention bans, the, um, all of the, the fun stuff that we now know is in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. They did a deliberate end run around Congress and then went back to the United States uh, lawmakers and said, oh, look at this treaty that we, that we they were obligated by. Now we have to pass mm-hmm. um, this law to, to make ourselves compliant with this treaty. So, um, you know, really TPP, in terms of the copyright issues um, and the digital... Uh, the digital copyright issues are, is really just the new phase of, you know, circumventing democratic, transparent, public policymaking processes um, and using the trade, the, the, sh- the shroud of secrecy afforded to trade negotiations to pass copyright issues when they don't pass um, democratically and openly. All right. You guys have convinced me that basically <laughs> the USTR office has basically been... Um, it's a clear case of agency capture, right? Oh, like, totally. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but, you know, but it's like, so what is the narrative, though, that, like, why, in, in this Congress where we can't get anything passed, how does a contentious treaty like this just sail through? Well, uh, we'll see. No, I mean, <laughs> the question, too, is do we want to pass something that's so toxic for everybody? Mm. I mean, are we, are we saying we need to get something done, even if that something is terrible for everybody? I mean, that's, no, no, I mean, I, that's what is, is going I'm, I'm on not, when the process is mm. rotten. Then we're, 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 um, well, I'm not advocating passing with. it. What I'm yeah. saying is how do they expect it's going to get done? Or for more importantly, why is Obama supporting it? Well, he's been much less supportive of it. I mean, less, you know, um, um, gung-ho about it lately. (laughs) At the State of the Union, he barely mentioned it. All of us were, all of us in the Mm -hmm. TVP uh, opposition uh, uh, movement were really expecting it to be mentioned uh, very prominently, and it wasn't. And I think that's because of the fact that it is so controversial. I mean, because Congress um, essentially had no input into it either. I mean, even um, Congress members and their staff weren't able to see the text unless they got rid of all their digital devices, unless they were in the secret room in the Capitol where they couldn't take notes, they couldn't bring any legislative experts. Um, so I think Congress, especially more the Democrats, are, are pretty upset that, uh, about all the secrecy despite passing trade promotion authority. I don't know how that jives together for them. But, um, and, and the other actual interesting thing is that um, even Republicans 
are upset that TPP doesn't go far enough for um, certain U.S. industries. So, for for example, there are some lawmakers, um, Senator Hatch, who believes that um, because the U.S. Trade Representative wasn't able to get 12 years of data exclusivity on medicine pens, it's like data exclusivity is essentially another layer of intellectual property on medicines, on research for um, for how research that's required for um, going generic. Um, that because the USTR didn't secure that on the TVP and imposed that on the other 11 countries, um, the pharmaceutical industry uh, is upset and Hatch is notorious, Senator Hatch is notoriously <laughs> representing um, the intellectual property industry. So he, even though he's very prominent in um, the, the Senate committee that would be you know, passing the implementing legislation, aka ratifying the TPP, he's been pretty cold, um, yeah. putting a cold shoulder to TPP. Also, tobacco companies are mad because mm -hmm. they aren't able to file those, um, what, what Mike mentioned in the beginning, these ISDS cases because um, uh, of these, the precedent where countries have been passing more of these plain packaging laws that are supposed to warn people of the health risks of tobacco. Um, and, and tobacco companies have been using this tribunal system to challenge these democratically passed rules under, the, under this ISDS mechanism to say that you, are, that you, the country, is undermining our profits and our expected future profits by forcing us to package our tobacco this way. Um, and, and that was carved out of the TPP because it was so controversial in these other trade avenues, um, trade venues. And, um, and so the tobacco companies are also upset. And so it's a really weird thing that um, right now it's not clear whether, you know, public interest, civil society organizations are going to be the poison pill for TPP or we're going to um, uh, defeat it. Or if um, the fact that the USTR made these weird compromises for certain um, for certain issues, it might actually kill the deal. Yeah, it's, it's this weird thing where I, I was thinking about the other day where it's like, I mean, you talk about strange bedfellows in, in politics. It's like, you know, do we want the TPP dead if the reason it gets dead is because it didn't go far enough? <laughs> I mean, if it doesn't get enough support, I mean, at least it's dead, but it's, it feels weird to have to have that be the reason. All right, um, I did want to, we're, 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 uh, running out of time, but I did want to jump in a little bit and discuss the whole ISDS thing because I think it's actually really important and it's one of these aspects that everyone sort of shuts their brains down because ISDS itself just sounds really boring, but it's this really important concept that I think we should discuss a little bit. Um, and so, you know, the, the basics of it is that, so to, to, um, if, if I were to describe it as Hirschwood <laughs> on the side of like, there, there was a, a reason for this, this concept of ISDS in the first place, which is the idea that if a company invests in a foreign country and puts a lot of money in and builds up a factory or something, and then that country, say, nationalizes the factory and just takes it, um, that is a concern for companies to invest in foreign countries, right? So you want some sort of process in place to deal with those kinds of situations where an investment is made and somehow it's appropriated uh, unfairly, right? But it's been turned into this much broader concept where, you know, basically a company says that any regulation that gets in the way of its expected future profits is somehow an expropriation of their, uh, you know, of their money and therefore they can go to a tribunal um, as you know, you were describing with the tobacco cases, where they can ask sort of you know these 
three private individuals to determine whether or not it was fair or whether or not the country has to pay. So one, I think, really egregious example of this that we've seen under the ISDS provisions right under NAFTA is that Eli Lilly, the big pharmaceutical company, is currently in a, in a fight with Canada because Canada rejected two patents, um, arguing that the patents on, on certain medicines didn't show themselves to be any more effective than things that were already on the market, and therefore they rejected the patents. Um, oh, so it wasn't based on prior art then? It wasn't based on prior art. It was based on effectiveness. And so that's a strange way to re reject right? it, it. And so Canada says you can do that. Other countries don't have that mm -hmm. as a provision for why they can reject patents. Eli Lilly says because that because of that reason for them rejecting it, that violates NAFTA, and therefore, and it has taken away you know five hundred million dollars worth of Eli Lilly profits, and therefore they're taking it to a tribunal. My my question really for the Canadian. Uh, uh, Regulator, whoever I guess the it was a court that court, decided yeah. this. Yeah, that decided this. So it wasn't their patent office. Was no, court. it was the, 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 the patent was granted. Them if, the, if that was really the case, that wasn't more effective. Why was anybody buying Eli's stuff? Well, that's that's a whole other issue on pharmaceuticals and how the pharmaceutical industry works. But that's, I mean, the definition of you know, I mean, you know, think about the allergy more medicine right? that, that you have. You know, when something is going off patent, suddenly you know it goes from Claritin to what mm -hmm. was the Claritin. Loratadine or something? No, but, but yeah, Claritin is is the brand name. So, yeah. but then there was like, before, so. and, but there was another like they upgraded it or something, mm -hmm. and basically it was shown to be no more effective. But they had a new patent on the new formula, mm -hmm. and so there's lots of cases of that in medicine. Basically, when the patent is about well, to run don't out, don't consumers use the new one and be like, it's no one better? I'm well, just well, doctors generic. will prescribe the, the new one. The problem one. is that the way it works is that usually you're yeah. prescribed something, and so the consumers don't necessarily have the choice. This is a whole <laughs> other <laughs> discussion yeah. that yeah. is an interesting one that we should definitely have seems yeah. uh, seems to be more like a false advertising case well to go back to the, so yeah. to no, go, go back ahead. to isds so um one of the fears with isds um for eff is that because of these new cases um so the definition of a investment that can be expropriated by a country expropriated in quotes um you know maybe by a court ruling or a law or some executive order um is, is intellectual property. And so that includes patents um, uh, under NAFTA. That's why um, uh, Eli, Eli Lilly was able to challenge um, the court ruling in Canada. Um, and we're afraid that those sort of things, that the ISDS um, definition of investment can be used to also encompass copyright issues and, and issues involving maybe a new fair use uh, finding or um, some exemption to um, uh, circumvention bans on DRM. So things that might actually benefit the public interest might be framed as undermining their expected future profits or in their investments by a foreign company and use the ISDS system to right. target um, these new, you know, more public interest safeguards. Right. So, so example, if there were, say, a fair use ruling around music or whatever, Universal Music, which is owned by a French company, could argue that the U.S. has unfairly taken away mm -hmm. their profits because of expanded Be fair use. Before we go further, how did the Eli case turn out? It's still going. Mm -hmm. And and so and then I mean there's another one that was just filed recently which is the Keystone pipeline which you know President Obama rejected after I mean it's been debated for years and years and years this is oil pipeline Trans Canada you know from Canada to the U S and it was shut down or you know rejected 
And so TransCanada, I think that's the company's right. name, filed an ISDS claim against the U.S. saying that they were expecting this pipeline to be approved. And the fact that it wasn't is a violation of their you know, future. And problem. I think they're challenging, they're asking for $50 billion for yeah. their, um, their pipe that they wanted to build across the United mm. States from getting rejected. Um, so that's, you know, that's just a very um, recent example of how um, this isn't just happening in other countries. M you know, many of these ISDS cases, when you look at um, the number of them, it's like a 45 degree slope where it's many of these cases are increasing at a, a huge rate. Um, and the United States itself is not um, immune to them. I mean, we mm. can we can pass um, rules that might actually be better for you know, um, uh, more efficient energy, alternative energies, or for user rights, or for generic medicines, or all kinds of things. And there's a risk that TPP, because it's between 12 countries, because um, corporations only need to be registered or have an office in any of the other 12 countries to file this against the United States, um, that there's a risk of, of just opening the floodgates to these sort of court cases where companies essentially have a right to attack a democratic law because it undermines our profits. And that's, that's really, really scary. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, the, the way that the, it's, it's so easy to abuse this process and, and it's, yeah, it's very scary. And it's been abused many times. Yeah, yeah, and it and has been. And, and like, you know, the U.S. Uh, what are the, the successful US, cases, though? Well, I mean, the U.S. pushback to it is that they've never lost an, an ISDS mm. case so far. That doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. Mm. Um, but maybe, I mean, if, if the case for the resolutions are, are, are not egregious, then just because there's the mechanism might not be bad. Because if you think about it, on the other hand, you know, if you don't have a law like that, then... Um, there can be some egregious things in terms of sort of appropriations, right? Now, the question is, is whether the interest in protecting the capital investment is greater than the interest in having sovereignty. And I think, you know, it's fair enough to say that maybe that's that's not the case. Like, you should be able to at any time... And, I mean, the other property. argument is, like, especially when you're talking about countries like Canada or the yeah. United States, we have robust judicial systems that mm. aren't, you know, that yeah. aren't corrupt. Well, I, I mean, mean, we're you, not going to... Yeah. You can understand this for, like, you know... For a developing nation where there's fear but, that, but we that can't there, there put may those be things in the like treaty a, and say it's only for developing nations. Well, sure, so that's you can. Why you can, you can do it in treaties it. that are between those nations. Like when it's, you know, if it's the U.S. And, and a developing nation, you can put that into an agreement. And I think people recognize that. The idea that it needs to be done between, like, you know, major, mm -hmm. you know, developed nations that have, you know, clear, strong, structured, judicial structures that are trustworthy. The, you know what? What is the point of that? Other I, than I 100% agree that the United States is better off negotiating almost 100% of the time. Not always, but almost 100% of the time, it gets a better deal when it does a bilateral negotiation. Simply because it has far greater leverage than any of these tiny countries, right? And those countries always have a substantial interest in opening up their economies yeah. to the United States. But you know, that's aside. You know, from a global fairness perspective, that might not work out for the little countries, though. So it's like a slightly different thing. But I, yeah. I'm 100% I'm sure that the United States could basically say exactly what you're saying. Only you will have the ISDN. We will not. Only you will allow these things in. We will not. Like They could probably arm twist everyone. But the, part of that, I think the reason they all group together is because they hope to get a better deal uh, yeah, by, to some by extent. I mean, there's all holding also, hands together, right? I mean, there's a whole other issue, which we're not going to get into because we're already way over on the amount of time. And we should we should be cutting this off. But like... There is this issue of China not being a part of it, and the argument that the TPP is sort of to rope in 
China and basically limit China in determining sort of who is the economic powerhouse in in the um, in Asia. But that's that's a whole other issue that again we would. Go and it's such, it's such a weird argument when you look at all of these provisions in the TPP that would undermine you know at least digital in, uh, innovation and and um, entrepreneurship. You know, I mean. Um, the copyright terms is one example. Another great example are these trade secrets provisions that wouldn't protect, um, you know, people who might be fired or have left a, one company and, and started their own company that might be somewhat related to the previous employer from getting um, sued by their previous employer for, for um, you know, essentially becoming a competitor. I mean, um, those sorts of uh, more sort of granular, important uh, regulatory things that should be mm -hmm. more broadly debated that um, ought not to be put put in and hard hardwired by entrenched industries is really important. I mean, that's, I mean, um, I, I think the USTR, the US Trade Representative really misses a huge opportunity by inviting um, and really opening the debate because entrenched industries have a in interest in remaining entrenched and remaining a mm -hmm. dominant industry. So, um, they're going to be shutting out a lot of entrepreneurship, so much experimentation that is so critical to, to, to innovation and just also like human rights and, and public the public what, interest. So. What, what does Silicon Valley companies like Google and Facebook and stuff say? Are they silent on this <laughs> treaty or are they for we it? That's a they whole other discussion. That's, yeah, that's a, I mean, they're partly for it, partly against is, is basically the way, I mean, they, they have not come out strongly against. In some cases, they have publicly supported the concept of TPP while trying to sort of, at least my view, is negotiate in the background to try and improve the problems of it. I think, I don't yeah. know if you I have mean, a different take on it. Um, I mean, is the door still open to negotiate the language? No. Uh, I don't think so, No, right? I mean, the language is now. the language. Yeah. No, you I just mean, Warren no, Hatch right? says that it can be <laughs> renegotiated, but it, it can't be. At this point, the language is the language. Um, and yeah, it's it's a little bit of a mess in that it would be it would have been a lot nicer if the large internet companies had spoken out against and they, it. They did to an extent. I think um, many of them sort of realized that they would be losing out if they weren't part of the conversation. And it, that's something that EFF has been sort of um, criticizing them about um, because they, they did join the debate and then they got some rules in their... Um, most notably, these data, this ban on d data localization, yeah. um, what's called the free flow of information provisions that would prevent, um, you know, uh, countries from requiring data to be hosted locally. Which, which are actually pretty good rules. Yeah. And, and sometimes they can be, if they're very limited, they could protect privacy of people, right. you know, if it's maybe financial data or voting data or something, you know, very limited, very restrained. Um, but uh, the the other hand of it is that it could undermine privacy rules. Um, mm -hmm. So because of these free flow of information provisions, um, the USTR touts this agreement as being very pro-internet, um, and it's sort of made Google and Facebook and these large tech companies more quiet on, on the TPP issue. Um, sadly, um, last summer when they were realizing that the uh, fair use or the exception limitations to copyright rules just weren't going to be as great as they thought they were going to get. Um, they tried at the very last minute to improve the language so that at least countries would be required to create um, balance in their copyright regimes. It's, it's really vague language, but at least to 
to um, to create balance in their copyright regimes. And Hollywood, when they got whiff of this, they freaked out and actually um, threw a bunch of lobbyists to try and um, prevent this from happening. Um, and the language stayed, um, shall seek to achieve balance in their copyright regime rather than shall achieve balance in their copyright regime. And that one word, seek to achieve, just means, oh, we tried. <laughs> we tried to, to have balance in our copyright regime. What is it, even the previous without the seek, what is get balance in your it doesn't even mean anything you gotta have a concrete rule it's just yeah it's, no, that's, it's, oh. it's, it's a mess but alright we are, we are way over our normal amount of time but it's a really interesting discussion one that I'm sure obviously we could continue yeah. uh, and therefore uh, but before as a closing thought though yeah. what do you think the chances are that it will actually get through Congress oh gosh it's really not clear at this point yeah. as I said there are people who don't think it goes far enough for companies it's, and obviously there's a huge coalition mm. of groups that say it's even money it's terrible even even the money is no, again. No, no, is, no, is, it, is, is it, it an even, even money oh, chance? Oh, 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 chance? oh. Um, yeah, it's. I'd it's say it's, I'm I'm going to be optimistic as an activist and say it's not going to pass. <laughs> but I mean, just to be clear on the process, it is going to be signed. It's going to be signed at the mm. beginning of February. That is just the executive process of signing it, and then it needs to be ratified by Congress, and that's mm. the big fight. Is basically yeah. whether or not, and so right, and so. It, it won't even pass if U.S. ratifies it alone. They have to. It has right. to be something like a certain percentage like 80, of GDP. Eighty-five percent. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of GDP, GDP of the countries that are oh, signing gosh. it has to. Yeah. Oh. All right. So, <laughs> so, so as a closing, I'll, I'll let our our guest do her job as a, as an activist and and tell people who are listening what they should be doing in order to try and assuming that you know as a listener of this you have to agree with us. So, uh, what they should be doing in terms of fighting against getting the TPP. So um, EFF has an action um, to email your Congress members to ask for a hearing. Um, now that the text is public, Congress can read the text and hold a hearing about the actual concrete issues of the deal and, and prod um, you know, the USTR about that content. The second thing is to ask them to vote it down when it comes to them before Congress. Um, because it's it's a rotten deal from a rotten process, and so we are urging people to email. Um, hopefully, actually, if you have time, call your Congress members, which is even better. And even better than that is to try and meet with them. If they are in your town having a town hall, or, or, or if you're in D.C., if you happen to be in D.C., try and organize a meeting. They really should hear from everyday people to know um, how the TPP would impact you and why you're concerned. And especially if you're a business owner, if, especially if you're in the tech industry, you should definitely um, be making a lot of noise about this. All right. That's great. And uh, thank you very much for joining us. As I said, we'll definitely have you back again. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Bye. Thanks, Mara. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get